This is Tech Talk with your host, Tom Dioria. Tom will spend the next hour making your life with technology a little easier with explanations of the different aspects of today's technology and how it can benefit your home, small office, or enterprise. Now here's your host, Tom Dioria. Welcome to IMI's Tech Talk. It's the second Sunday of January. It's January 8th, 2017. We're on at 5 p.m. in the New York listening area and 3 p.m. in Arizona. And today we're live from our New York offices, and we're going to have a very interesting show. We're going to be discussing modern-day Pearl Harbor fishing attacks. Uh, our guest is uh, Richard Aborn, who is the president of the Citizens Crime Commission, and I think uh, you're going to really enjoy uh, Richard's uh, interview today. I'm Tom DeRoy. I'm the CEO of Information Methods Incorporated, and together with our weekly guests, our show will help our listeners, whether we're a business or home technology user, make better use of all aspects of technology, just in case you're a first-time listener. In our first segment, Tech Talk provides you the review of last week's most significant events in technology. We start with the increased coverage of New York's technology scene, and we follow this with our industry-wide report which could contain information on conferences, announcements by vendors, new releases of software or equipment, or new contract opportunities. One of my guests followed us from many aspects of business and industry, and if you wish us to consider a topic for a future show, you can email your suggestions to techtalk, that's T-E-C-H-T-A-L-K, at imi-us.com, we'll get back to you pretty quickly. Anytime after our show introduction, please give us a call or send an email message with questions on today's topic or anything else we might be able to help you with. You can call 277-KFNX, that's 277-5369. And if you're outside the 602 listening area, call us toll-free at 1-866-536-1100. You can send email questions throughout the show to that email address I just gave you, techtalk at imi-us.com. We monitor that throughout the show, and if we don't get your question on today's show, we'll definitely send you a response and try and get you on next week. And we're also being simulcast on the web, so if you want to listen to us live but you can't get to your radio, you can go to KFNX's website, which is 1100kfnx.com. And if you want to listen to this show again or any of our previous shows, please go to our website, which is imi-us.com. In the upper right-hand corner is the Tech Talk button. Click on that. All the shows are archived, so you can listen to them as many times as you want. Send them to your friends. Uh, it's free, so please take advantage of that. And please call any time during the show, and we'll try and get you on as quickly as possible. Our first segment is our Week in Review, which increased coverage of technology events in New York City and around the world. It's compiled by Dave Brandon, Dan Diori, and Jose Batista. So something that we've been following um, with regard to train safety, technology related to that, um, triggered again uh, because the Long Island Railroad had a uh, train derailment on Wednesday the 4th, uh, slammed into the end of the Brooklyn's Atlantic Terminal, which is pretty close to PSAC 1, where if you're a regular listener, you know we uh, work at uh, regularly. Um, the claim was because the driver had uh, sleep apnea, possibly, and uh, the train was traveling uh, faster than it should have. The NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, uh, said that it's going to take uh, probably into the middle of this week uh, to fully, fully investigate the accident. About 103 people who were injured. Luckily, nobody was killed. Uh, and um, they had uh, tracks five and six when the accident occurred closed for a while. Uh, they were interviewing the queue. The, train uh, crew, 
I think there were three of them, and they said the uh, engineer was cooperating as well. The data recorder was recovered, uh, just like an airplane. They have a data recorder. Um, so we're going to uh, try and find out, again, why there aren't these automatic uh, stopping devices when you know you're coming into the end of a station uh, if the train is going too fast or fast at all. Um, so again, we'll try that. They're not ruling out anything mechanical error or operator error. Um, so we'll report back to them and also find out if we can from the NTSB, um, you know, what their perception is. Cranes tells us that federal prosecutors have charged three Chinese nationals accused of profiting from insider training about mergers and acquisitions by hacking into the network of law firms working on the deals. The three men made more than $4 million in profits buying stock in companies that were about to be fired and then selling the shares after the acquisitions were announced. Prosecutors said that the trio got their inside information between April 2014 and late 2015 by hacking into the email systems of multiple international law firms with offices in New York. All three are being charged with multiple securities fraud, insider trading, computer intrusion, and other offenses. They face up to 20 years in prison if convicted uh, of the most serious charges. Defendants profited from deals, including the acquisition of e-commerce company Border Free by Pitney Bowes and Intel Corp's acquisition of circuit manufacturer Altera, according to the, uh, that's according to the indictment. Uh, so we'll see what happens with that. Times tells us that Amazon is bringing one of its experiments in brick-and-mortar retailing to New York. Barricades went up several days ago outside a retail space in the high-end mall at Time Warner Center in Manhattan with a sign saying an Amazon bookstore would open there soon. The Manhattan location uh, with an opening plan for the spring will be the eighth that the Internet giant has opened or announced. Stores in or near Portland, San Diego, Seattle are now open, and Amazon has said it is working on stores in Chicago and Dieter Mass near Boston. On Thursday, it updated its listing to include future stores in Linfield, Massachusetts, and Paramus, New Jersey. While Amazon has conquered the online shopping market, accounting for 38% of e-commerce sales in the United States during the recent holiday season, it has taken a cautious approach to physical retail where its presence is small. Company's strength online and its willingness to test concepts in brick-and-mortar shopping has stirred speculation that it could upend how products are bought and sold in physical stores. The company recently opened a convenience store, Amazon Go, in Seattle that allows customers to grab soft drinks, sandwiches, and other food from shelves and leave without visiting a cash register. Shoppers gain entry to the store with a smartphone application and a charge for items using sensors and other technologies similar to those in self-driving cars. At first glance, Amazon's bookstores appear to be more conventional with rows of shelves of, and nooks for reading. Company stocks far fewer titles than typical bookstores using online data to determine which ones to carry. Uh, McClaffey, D.C., tells us that signs have already begun to pop up at airports across the country. If you live in nine particular states and are counting on your driver license to get you through security, you'll soon be left grounded. Thanks to federal law passed in 2005, residents of Kentucky, Maine, Minnesota, Missouri, Montana, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, 
and Washington will need another form of identification to present to the TSA, the Transportation Security Administration, at airports, effective January 22, 2018. The Real ID Act, which was passed with bipartisan support, requires that certain security measures to be taken, including a broadened measure of business information including included on ID cards, a common machine-readable technology with defined minimum data elements and anti-fraud measures for the people issuing the ID. While the law does not compel states to change their process or standards for ID cards, it does require that the federal organizations reject any IDs from non-compliant states, which includes airlines uh, for travel. At the moment, just 24 states as well as Washington, D.C. have made their licenses compliant with the law. However, 15 others have received extensions through 2018, leaving nine with the residents who will soon need either a passport or a permanent resident card, uh, defining, depending on their legal status. In addition to air travel, people from non-compliant states will feel other effects even sooner. Starting January 30, 2017, those people cannot use their state-issued IDs or en to enter military bases or federal buildings. That's pretty interesting, and uh, hopefully we'll get around more than just on Tech Talk. And finally, Norway will soon start on becoming the first country to phase out analog frequency modulation technology, or FM, for national and some regional broadcasts. Uh, FM radio stations across Norway will gradually switch digital audio broadcasting standard known as DAB. The shutdown process that starts in northern Norway is due to be completed by the end of the year. The Norwegian government has cited its landscape with deep fjords, high mountains, and scattered communities for making it expensive to operate FM. So that's uh, pretty interesting. Okay, we're going to take a break. We're going to get to our guest, Richard Aborn. President of the Citizens Crime Commission in New York. We're going to talk to you about modern day Pearl Harbor phishing attacks. I'm Tom Dioria. This is IMI's Tech Talk. We're on KFNX AM 1100. It's the 8th of January 2017. Please stay tuned. We're going to be right back after these messages. Welcome back to IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. I'm Tom Dioria, and as I mentioned to you before the break, uh, we're going to be discussing uh, the Citizens Crime Commission of New York City with our guest, Richard Aborn, and he's the president of the Crime Commission, which is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that uh, he'll fill us in on a little bit more. Um, he draws on his wide experience in criminal prosecution and litigation, um, Mr. Aborn also serves as president of Constantine and Aborn Advisory Services, which advises police departments, criminal justice agencies, corporations, and other organizations in the United States, Europe, and Latin America on high-level strategy and management issues. Uh, Mr. Aborn previously served as a senior law enforcement advisor in New York, where he developed a comprehensive criminal justice policy with the city of New York. 
1999, he was commissioned by the Office of the Public Advocate of New York City to conduct an investigation of the New York Police Department uh, disciplinary system. Uh, resulted in numerous recommendations to reduce police misconduct. And from 1992 to 1996, Mr. Aborn was president of Handgun Control, Inc., which is now the Brady Campaign, which is the leading gun control advocacy organization in the United States. And uh, he also served as president of the Center to Prevent Handgun Violence, where he worked with New York City public school system. And uh, Richard was an assistant district attorney in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, um, where he prosecuted major felonies. He lectured at the Law School of New York University, debated at the Political Union, and served as a visiting fellow at Columbia University. Richard, thanks uh, for taking the time from your busy schedule to be with us. My pleasure, Tom. Always happy to be with you. Okay, I want to get into, uh, since we're a technology show, uh, the cyber uh, espionage stuff that the Crime Commission is getting into. Sure. First, let's, let's talk... Uh, basics. What is the Crime Commission more than I gave in that introduction? So we are an organization that focuses on the most vexatious crime issues that confront the city, New York City, and because it's New York City, that often means it's crime issues that are popping up across the country, and I must say increasingly around the world, because I do this work all over the world, and I'm beginning to see the same issues over and over and over again. Uh, we've been around since Teddy Roosevelt was the head of the NYPD, which means we've been around since the turn of the 19th century. And in our, in our most modern form, we are focused on gun violence, gang violence, juvenile justice, cybercrime, and increasingly technology. And we try and develop innovative solutions to address those areas, often bringing together all the various aspects of the criminal justice system, so the police and the prosecutors and the courts, as well as the uh, agencies that support the criminal justice system, including the very vigorous not-for-profits in New York that do all the prevention work here. Now, um, how does the word citizen get into the name? Is, are there citizens involved in this? Yeah, so we are not a government commission. We are a group of citizens who care about the city and have for years and years and years who get together to work on these issues. And we now, I mean, to be honest about this, have grown into a, a, a fairly significant presence in New York. Um, there's also there's a rule in New York State that if the word commission is in your name, the word citizen has to come before to differentiate it from a governmental commission. So you have the Citizens Committee for Children, the Citizens Budget Commission, and the Citizens Crime Commission. And, and each group is the same, although they focus, we focus on different subject matters. Now, how do you get funded? Are you funded by the government? No, no, no. We, well, we take a minuscule amount of government funding on a contract basis. If the government asks us to do a particular task, We'll do it on a fee basis, but it's it's a microscopic amount of our funding. No, our funding is from the public, from from people who live in the city, uh, from corporations. Corporations and businesses in New York are probably the vast majority of the funding, and of course we get foundation support for various projects. Okay, let's let's uh, maybe you can give our listeners a um, an overview of some of the projects. I want to. 
as I said, come back and focus on uh, cybercrime prevention, which you just sent something out on. But uh, maybe you can just give an, an overview of all the different projects so people can get a perspective of how the Crime Commission is focusing on many different things. So um, I have an extensive background in gun violence in America. Now, I used to lead the National Gun Control Movement and ran handgun control when we passed the Brady Bill, the ban on assault weapons, the ban on large volume clips, and, and numerous other things. So I have been involved in that arena for a long time. Gun violence continues to plague us, so gun violence continues to be a principal focus of what we do, and we do it both nationally and locally. Nationally, we focus on legislation, and I must say also at the state level. And locally, we focus on both prevention techniques, how do you reduce gun violence through prevention interventions, and then we also focus on law enforcement techniques. So, for instance, this year we worked extensively with all the various legs of the criminal justice system to build a very comprehensive series of interventions against gun violence. Uh, we worked with the police to set up a specialized unit within the police department to focus on illegal guns, which is doing, going just incredibly well. Uh, we worked with the DAs to get them uh, to, to focus on guns in a slightly different way from what they were doing. And we worked with the courts to speed up the trial and the adjudication of gun cases and then tied that all together into a single project. And that's working quite well. Shootings in New York are down substantially, and our projections are that the murder rate will come in at a record low. And that's pretty amazing because we're already at record low in murder rates. On gang violence, uh, we do direct prevention work. We work with the kids who are at the highest risk of gang behavior, which means they're likely to be involved in shootings or other gang violence. We work with them both directly, and we work with groups that are working with them to try and reduce some of their violence. We have an extensive online um, series of interventions. As you know, there's a lot of cyberbullying out there. And even more troubling, there is a lot of violence that occurs online that then transfers back into the real world and results in murder. So we're deeply involved in that area. Uh, we do a lot of work around cybercrime prevention. About 85% of all successful cyber intrusions, including the ones at the State Department, the White House, and the DNC, occur because people either have faulty passwords or they click on phishing or spear phishing attacks. So we do a lot of work in that area as well. And then we do four or five other things, including what we'll talk about today, which is our innovation lab called the Predictive Prevention Lab. Okay. Um, we've got about a minute left in this segment. Can you get, give us a quick overview of uh, what you're doing in terms of um, the cyber attack activity that you've done with Carnegie Mellon, the University of Pittsburgh, uh, as our listeners know, I uh, taught and worked at Carnegie 100 years ago. Um, so I'm familiar with the type of work that, that they're doing in this area. But um, give us a, a quick one-minute overview, and then when we come back from the break, we can get a little bit more about exactly what you're doing with them in Fordham. Sure. So one of the great ironies about the cyber attacks that are taking place is that they come in, these, these attacks occur, because of very sloppy behavior by individuals online. So people, although this is increasingly hard to do, but very often people don't put passwords on their devices and they bring those devices to work. Or if they do put passwords down, 
they put down very simple passwords. You might be surprised to know, well, you know it, but your listeners may be surprised to know that 1111 is one of the most popular passwords in the world, followed by 1234. So we train people extensively around the need to put down strong passwords and, and what kind of passwords to construct. We do the same thing with phishing and spear phishing attacks, which we can talk about in your next segment, which is a real point of vulnerability for people. Um, we, we have tools that we've created with Carnegie Mellon uh, and another tool with Fordham that train people on how to avoid those kinds of attacks. So we're doing everything we can in a classic crime prevention model, which is educating people on how not to become a victim. Okay, on that note, which I'm very surprised about, people are still using easy passwords or no passwords. We're going to take a break. This is Tom DiOrio on IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. We're talking uh, Richard Aborn, who's the president of the Citizen Crime Commission of New York City. Uh, please stay tuned. This is the half-hour break, so you're going to get the national news longer. But uh, we'll be right back, so uh, please stay tuned. Welcome back to IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. I'm Tom DiOrio, and our guest today is Richard Aborn, who's the president of the Citizen Crime Commission of New York City. And I gather I need to put the New York City in there, because are there more than one uh, crime commission? So there actually are crime commissions spread out across the United States, not in every city by any means, but there are probably, oh, I don't know, 10 or 12 out there. Um, we're probably the, the, the broadest ranging and the most active. A lot of the crime commissions focus on um, developing relationships with their law enforcement partners. Some have programs around gangs and around warrants. <laughs> Excuse me. But we, we have a very extensive series of interventions that we do. And I haven't even mentioned the fact that we host a pretty prestigious uh, speaker series where leading law enforcement officials come in from around the world uh, and, and address our members and our selected guests. So we're, yeah. we're probably one of the biggest ones out there. Definitely, I want to indicate, and we can talk a little bit more about this uh, maybe at the end of the show, about the types of things you do and how really interesting they are. You've had some really interesting guests. But I'm really interested in what you said before we took a break. People are still using silly passwords or no passwords at all after all this that's come up about cybercrime and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you a very quick story without revealing any names. Um, I do a lot of work with the NYPD, and I was... Uh, down, going down there and talking with someone who's not involved with the NYPD the other day. We just happened to run into each other in the lobby. And I saw him take out his And smartphone. they didn't ignore you like I did that time? Yeah, no, they did not ignore me like you did. You're the only one that ignored me down there. That was funny. And he took out his smartphone, and he quickly put a password in and had to check something. And I could see he was doing repetitive typing. And I said, you know, you really got to use a stronger password than 1111. Now, I took a bit of a guess. But he looked at me and said, how would you know my password? Said, this is a sophisticated guy. And I said, well, you know, you're in the PD. Obviously not, too. <laughs> and I said, no, don't worry about it. It's just everybody uses the same thing. It's a problem. It's a very big problem. Um, again, everybody brings their own personal device into the workplace. And too many of us don't put on strong passwords. So they get very easy to guess and therefore, and therefore are easy to break into. But the the increasing problem, the larger problem, because we are getting more sophisticated about passwords, are these phishing attacks. Phishing attacks are when somebody sends you, send you an email 
which looks real, it looks like it's a legitimate email, and you click on it, and it turns out to have been sent by a hacker. And then there are something called, and they tend to be somewhat generic. And by the then time you click on it, it's too late, right? You're done. You're done. Yeah. You're done. Your, your system's open. Every system that's tied to your system is open, and the virus just makes its way through it. And you have these botnets. You have all sorts of ways of mounting attacks and sustained attacks, long, long-term attacks. The even more complicated area, what are called spear phishing attacks, spear phishing attacks are where hackers spend a lot of time understanding the profile of a person and then construct a phishing email which is carefully tailored to that individual so that the individual will by no means be suspicious about the email that he receives. It could be an email between you and I, Tom, we've known each other for a long time, in which I ask you a question which would seem very logical to you. And the reason that happens is that hackers would be would have broken into my email system, be studying my behavior online, see correspondence to you, and construct an attack based on that. Um, it takes a long time to put them together. But there are lots of ways to detect them. Uh, one of the most common ways is to look very, very closely at the email. Another is just have a blanket rule that you don't click on something unless you absolutely know who the the sender is. A third rule, which I do all the time, even if I know the sender, I will let my mouse hover over the link, and the link should, you know, the uh, the uh, the recipient of the link pops up, and it should say exactly who the link pretends to be. If it's from American Express, the link should reflect American Express. So there are lots of ways to recognize these things, but you've got to be very careful. Um, speaking of American Express, a couple of years ago, there was a very sophisticated series of phishing and spear phishing attacks sent around in which people would receive online statements or online inquiries from, quote, the fraud department, which looked incredibly real, incredibly real. And unless you looked at them closely, you would not think that they were fake. And a lot of people just clicked on them and ended up opening up their accounts to people. So you've got to be very careful. We train very deeply on that. And we're increasingly training not only educational institutions, students, but we're starting to break into the corporate world and the government world because this training is critical. It's something everybody should undergo. Yeah, I mean, I was interested in one of your reports that you said approximately 95% of cyber attacks uh, involve preventable human error. Yeah, and, that number and the is, behavior yeah, weaknesses but, you were talking about. I'm surprised at that high percentage. It's uh, so everybody is shocked about that. But if you, but and most people think that cyber intrusions come in through very sophisticated actors, governments, or criminal syndicates that somehow figure out how to break the firewalls. And to be sure, some of that happens. But the vast majority, because it's much easier, and you can do it on a massive scale is to send out these phishing attacks or to break into people because of their phony, um, not phony, but faulty passwords. You, if, if you're a sophisticated hacker, you can send out 10, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 emails seeking vulnerabilities, and undoubtedly you're going to get some people to respond. Doing an attack through a firewall or some other defense requires a, a heck of a lot more work, and there are chances that you'll be detected. Now, I was surprised also, uh, basically from that same uh, report, that most people think of the impact being financial, but you indicate that there's a whole bunch of other issues that, when you get fished, uh, come into play, like trauma, which I didn't even think about, or 
business consequences. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so there are a lot. And just to come at your question in a slightly different way, because it encapsulates a very important principle. Far too many people think there's no real impact on them from being hacked, or there's no real impact on their business from being hacked, and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, when you're seeking to change people's behavior, particularly in a crime prevention um, uh, area, you really want to appeal to what's called their intrinsic motivation. What is it inside somebody that will cause them to change in addition to just their general concern about society? And one of the things we've noticed is that we have to give people intrinsic motivation to get them to be more careful online and to use stronger passwords. This is a huge issue. So if you get hacked and you've, been, and you've brought your smart device to work, you have to realize that your work setting, your corporation, your law firm, your consulting group, your technology group, whatever it is, now has opened up its books to criminals who can steal all sorts of information banking information, personal information, photos of children, it's just endless number of things that they can steal. They can cause all of your credit cards to be shut down. You might have to alter other identification documents. It is endless the number of person the amount of personal hassle and the business impact this can take. But in addition to that, yeah, people have been shamed. Things get posted on on the internet. People have, are the subject of false statements on the internet. People, you know, people's colleagues realize they're the source of an attack, which is enormously problematic for a corporation. So there, there are lots of things that can occur because of these hacks, and they're, and they're beyond just financial. And more broadly, frankly, everybody has a role to play in stopping these. These are having a big impact on the country. One of the things that, to our knowledge, has not happened yet is that a foreign attack has not taken place which has caused things to shut down or explosion to take place, but that's not beyond the realm of possibility. So these are very, very serious. Everybody needs to take it seriously, but it's very simple to learn how to protect not only yourself, but in protecting yourself, you're protecting your work colleagues, your family, and sometimes maybe even your country. If I think I've been uh, a victim of cybercrime, what do I do? Uh, it's tough. First thing you want to do is shut down your credit cards, call your bank. Second thing is you want to call the FBI and report it. There's something called the ICI, and you can readily get that information online. And third, depending on what's happened, you may want to call your local police. Um, in Manhattan, or actually throughout New York, cybercrime is probably one of the fastest-growing areas of crime uh, in the city. A lot of it's cell phone theft, a lot of it's hacking. So you want to report it to the police and, and to the FBI so that they can continue to monitor not only the kinds of attacks that are taking place and seek to intervene, but also do what they can to put out more prevention tips. We're going to take a break. Uh, we're going to get back to uh, Richard Aborn, who is the president of the Citizens Crime Commission of New York City. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the activity that they have going uh, with Carnegie Mellon and the University of Pittsburgh and Fordham. And then uh, let Richard tell us... Uh, what he sees in the future. This is Tom DiOrio or an IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. Please stay tuned. We're going to be right back after these messages.
Welcome back to IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. I'm Tom DiOria. Richard Aborn's our guest from the Citizens Crime Commission of New York City. I mentioned early on that the uh, Crime Commission is or has developed, I guess, some training with Carnegie Mellon and, and University of Pittsburgh. Can you tell us about the tools and what's going on there? With Fordham, we are developing an ITS-based system. ITS is Intelligent Tutoring System, which means it's personalized to the individual on how to avoid using faulty passwords. Fordham will, and we're piloting this now, meaning we're still testing it, but Fordham will soon require that all its incoming students take this course. And the course will immediately assess an individual's level of knowledge about computer practices and passwords, and then will deliver curriculum, deliver training materials to that individual student. Students will do this on their own in a mobile atmosphere. Part of it will be game-based technology, and part will be just actually materials. And then there'll be a short test at the end of it just to make sure that the student has taken the course and understands what they're doing. And again, the goal is, is not an academic goal. The goal is to change the behavior of students online so they take every step they possibly can to avoid putting in an easy-to-detect or no password. With Carnegie Mellon, we are using an ITS-based system that will take people through phishing and spear phishing uh, technology, also in an ITS format, an intelligent tutoring system, meaning, again, that that system will gauge the level of understanding of the person about uh, phishing and spear phishing attacks and then deliver individualized lessons to that person and with the same end. And we're also testing that right now. And as, as we perfect those, and we're very close to having those done, we will then, as I mentioned earlier, roll those out on a much broader basis so that as many people as possible can take advantage of going through this training, which does not take very long, which will make not only them but everybody else much safer online. And then more broadly, Tom, as you know, we are taking a lot of the cutting-edge technology that's out there and using it in the crime prevention space. I do a lot of work with policing technologies, and we're, we're taking those same tools, particularly the predictive tools, and applying them in the prevention space. So we have tools that now sit online to help people intervene in online violence. We have tools that train at-risk kids about how to get basic skills for job development. Uh, we have tools that help people stay in jobs. We have tools that help people understand their emotional barriers that, um, which if, if not followed, will inevitably have them ending up in crime. So we train people how to recognize their own what psychologists call triggers and then a host of other tools that we're developing. And I think the upshot is, is that as much as technology is changing the way we live, and there is just no way around that, it is having as big an impact on policing, and it's fantastic what is happening with technology and policing. And I am completely convinced, which is why we've set up this innovation lab, I am completely convinced that there is that same sort of bright future to use technology in the prevention space. And that is the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal of all law enforcement is to stop crimes before they happen. Not in the minority report sense of that word for your viewers, for your viewers, sorry, for your listeners who have seen that film, but in the very real world of predicting errant behavior and changing that behavior before it results in crime. We now have that within our grasp. That is not a pipe dream by any means. We're doing it every single day, and I think it's just going to accelerate over the up-and-coming years as people more and more understand how beneficial the technology can be in this arena. You mentioned the Innovation Lab. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
Sorry, sure. So in the Innovation Lab, we are developing lots of different very predictive tools which take technology of all sorts, whether it's metacognition, psycholinguistics, uh, AI, machine learning, you name it, and we are using that to intervene in violence. So I'll give you a very specific example, and I can give you any number of them. Um, one of the big problems we're having with gangs is that the vitriol that used to occur on the street where gang members would get into fights has now transferred to social media, and principally Facebook. I know Facebook is almost an antiquated technology for some, but it still resides on Facebook, and it's because of its public and permanent characteristics. So people in gangs are getting into these terrible fights online, but unfortunately it's not simply staying online where it could be somewhat harmless. Um, it is now resorting back to the streets or returning to the streets, and we're now tracing literally hundreds of murders to these online attacks. So murders really? that have started online and now are ending up being in the street, and people are dying and people are being shot. So we work with what's called the Cure Violence Methodology, which is a methodology which takes what are called credible messengers. People have walked the walk and trains them to intervene in gangs. There are 20 sites around New York City that we work with, and we've developed a tool for them called eResponder. eResponder allows them to take tried and proven conflict resolution techniques and apply them online when they see online violent behavior. And we've just finished testing it, and our results are really strong. Uh, we are having success in getting people to take down dangerous posts, to come into a cure violence site, to change their behavior online. This is an extremely promising tool. But the, the folks where they are using it, who are very encouraged by it, said one of the problems they have is that there are so many violent posts online, they don't know that which are real, that which are fake, that which are imminent, and that which are just kids puffing their chests, as kids will do. So we're developing another tool called FAST, which is the Facebook application screening tool, which will be a snap-on to Facebook, and will actually be electronically calling through Facebook posts and telling the people we work with what are real posts, what are fake posts, what are imminently violent, and what are less threatening. So we'll triage the posts that are online. That will allow our people to intervene much more quickly. Um, that's a fantastic tool and has just endless applications. In fact, I'm getting requests for that from different countries now at this point because I'm worried about that as getting out. Um, we have another tool where we're taking kids who are involved in these gangs and getting them, as I mentioned earlier, but now I'll explain it, to recognize their own emotional triggers and to get them to be trained to take on jobs, which we're helping them get into. So we're taking the facial recognition software that's embedded in, uh, in laptops and the mobile devices, as well as the biometric feedback processes, and actually sort of wiring them to the machine. And while they take these courses that we developed online, the machine is understanding their psychological state and will actually give them feedback about how they're doing. And we're going to, we will be, we have to develop this, but we will be doing that in an ITS setting as well. Um, so there are lots of things we're developing in the, in the innovation lab that will be useful, not just to prevent cybercrime, but also to reduce real-world violence, gun violence, gang violence, etc. Then we have some pretty sophisticated tools that do very in-depth analysis about the, um, about the interventions that are taking place so we can evaluate what people are doing to reduce violence and continue to hone those techniques, as well as to get a much deeper understanding 
of the drivers of violence. Like a lot of people say school dropout is a driver of violence, and it is, but why? Why do the kids drop out? When do they drop out? What are the warning signs they might drop out? And that's just one minor example of the area that the areas that we're starting to get into. So it's, a, it's an incredibly exciting time uh, in this arena. Well, I'm glad we were able to finally get you on the show. I know we've been trying for a while and keep missing each other. I hope to have you on again because there's so much here that, that we can talk about technologically as well as socially. Um, how do our listeners follow up with you if, if they want to follow up on some of these? I think the easiest thing to do is to just go online. We're at nycrimecommission.org, nycrimecommission, as one word, .org. And we have a pretty robust website. Some people tell me it's too robust, meaning it's too dense. <laughs> but, and I'll fix that. But everything, everything is up there. And we welcome anybody to, be, to join with us. We are a citizens group. We have support from all over the country, and we welcome anybody new. Richard, I really appreciate you taking the time, and as I said, I hope to get you on the show again uh, real soon. My pleasure, Tom. Anytime. Next week, we're going to be live from our New York offices, and we're going to have our review of CES. We're going out there to uh, see what new technologies might be in the uh, offing for everybody. I want to thank uh, Terry Giro, IMI's president, Dave Brandon, Dan Diori, and Jose Batista for our week in review. Taylor Redden's our producer. Tess Henshaw is our associate producer. Matt Campagni is our executive producer. And without the help of Robert Baumbach from the KFNX AM 1100 production department, you wouldn't have heard a word we said. Thanks again for listening, and please don't forget to tune into Tech Talk next week at 5 p.m. New York on KFNX AM 1100. And remember to send us your suggestions for future shows or ask us questions by sending an email to techtalk at imi-us.com. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening, and happy 2017. All Arizona, all the time. Check out our Locals list on Twitter. View our update widget at 1100kfnx.com.